Today on Peace Talks Radio, part two of our series on raising boys. This time tackling the challenge of steering youngsters away from misogyny, violence, and non-consensual dominance of partners. Look at the movies our kids watch with the, the objectification of women that we all just get used to. If we don't train kids to see that asymmetry of power in the environment, then they're not going to see it in their own relationships. If kids grow up where they learn that they can talk about any of this stuff, then they're going to begin to have a chance to not be sucked into that black hole of maleducation about, about sexuality and sensuality. I talk to young people about why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it because society says something? Because your friend says something? Are you trying to live up to some kind of image? Uh, those are the conversations you have to have. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or exploring how we can all reduce conflict and achieve more peace with each other in our families, workplaces, nation, or world, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, as we present the second of two programs exploring the special challenges of raising boys into becoming young men who don't turn to violence and crime and sexual domination. Young boys and sex will be the focus of this program. I'll suggest that the conversation is going to be rated PG-13, so parents or guardians of youngsters should make your own call if you think that the content is inappropriate or too challenging. You can find the program later at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Now, having said that, I'll give away probably the main point that all of our guests bring to the front, and that is that we should all be a little braver in talking to our children, boys and girls, earlier and more often about all aspects of sex. Among the statistics that we heard in the first program about raising boys are these sex-related crimes, the super-huge majority committed by men, young men, or boys. 87% of stalkers are male. 86% of domestic violence assaults resulting in physical injury are done by males. 99% of rapes are committed by males. Some high-profile rapes and shootings have involved a most certain misogyny, As in our last episode, here again is a clip from the Jackson Katz documentary, Tough Guys, G-U-I-S-E, 2. Two star high school football players in Steubenville, Ohio, have been found guilty of raping a West Virginia teenager. Take the Steubenville, Ohio case, where two adolescent boys were convicted of raping a drunk and unconscious 16-year-old girl at a party. The boys were popular high school football players, and a number of kids shared pictures and video on social media of the passed out girl during the course of the night. How do you, how do you, feel, how do you feel on a dead girl? One video in particular made the night of the rape by a group of guys in Steubenville showed just how normalized this kind of sexism and misogyny have become in a lot of male peer cultures. She's at least a 14. She's deader than a doornail. For this guy and his friends, who had just witnessed or heard what had happened and weren't even sure if the young woman was alive, the whole thing was an occasion to bond and get some laughs with their buddies. As sick as this seems, this case is just another example of something that sexual assault researchers have been saying for a long time. It doesn't matter whether it's at a party in middle America, on a bus in New Delhi... In India, the young woman, gang-raped on a New Delhi bus, has died. ...or even more brazenly in the public space of Tahrir Square in Cairo, Egypt. 
Gang rape is often an expression of a twisted kind of group ritual in male culture in which otherwise regular guys perform for and bond with each other by dehumanizing and abusing women, all in order to prove to their friends that they're real men. Links to the Media Education Foundation page with the films Tough Guys 1 and Tough Guys 2 are on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Cases like this, or the apparently misogynistic mass shooting in 2014 in Santa Barbara by a young man, has many wondering. Not wondering so much about where those messages are coming from. Everybody seems to know that although we debate which is more at fault, we all seem to know that misogynistic messages come from other adults, sometimes in the same household as the young boys, and they come from the media, books, magazines, movies, the internet, advertising, television. In a nation of freedom of speech and low government regulation, most seem to accept that doing anything about the media end of the equation seems to be a lost cause, a perhaps debatable conclusion which we've covered in other Peace Talks radio programs on video game violence, for example. But in any case, we also wonder how to counter or balance the impact of the many messages of sexual objectification and gender inequality that are aimed at our boys. And that's where we'll spend a good bit of our time with our guests today on Peace Talks Radio. We'll begin with Suzanne Kreider's conversation with Dr. Victor Lecherva, co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness Group and author of the book Masculine Wisdom. And again, I'll repeat that I'd say that we're going into PG-13 territory in most of these conversations. How would you teach a young boy, if you're a parent, to accept their, the pleasure of their body and not to dominate a woman or another man? Well, hopefully, from the beginning, when the three-year-old boy starts playing with his penis while he's sitting on the couch... Uh, what would you do? What would, I, what would I do in that situation? I'd say it's really great and cool to uh, experience pleasure from touching yourself. And it's kind of a, of a private thing. And so it's not okay to, to do it when there's a lot of other kids around or a lot of other people around. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing. But it's something that you get to do for yourself in private. So that would be an approach. Um, I think it's very important, especially pre-puberty, not at puberty when the hormones are already raging, but pre-puberty to have developmentally consistent conversations with kids about their sexuality. Just having this um, openness around discussing anything that comes up and using those teachable moments. If you're watching uh, a video together or watching something together, you can point this out or point that out. It's the same like when you read a bedtime story. You don't just read the story to get through the story. You stop at various points and you say, well, what do you think's going on with that fuzzy fox? Um, so you use all those teachable moments to, to begin to keep a conversation alive. The other piece of this, which is critical because you, you ask the question in a certain way about how we as parents can instruct our, our young men to experience pleasure in their body and then but not be dominating their partners in an unhealthy way. One of the things that's really important for parents to understand is that at some point, their kids will not listen to them and their best advice. And so part of our job as parents is to find those three to five other people who may say the same things because we have a shared sense of values that we would say, but that our kids can hear because it's not their parent telling them. There's going, to, there's going to be times 
for every teenager, I experienced this with my own girls, where no matter what I say, no matter how wise it is, no matter how actively listening I am, no matter all the skills that I bring into play, it still doesn't make a difference because their job is to push me away to define themselves. So in that process of pushing away, my job as a parent, before we get to that point, who are the other three to five people in their lives that I can say, look, I'm having a really hard time right now with my son communicating. I need you to go throw the ball around with him or take a walk on the beach or play music or whatever it is. How do parents know who to pick for the three to five people because coaches can sexually molest them or um, sometimes people, religious people can sexually molest them? How, how do parents pick? Well, ideally uh, through one's extended family or if, again, if both men and women have taken a time to develop a sense of community, then you'll know who those people are within those com- that community who, who can uh, reach out to your kids when when you need a supportive person. It can be an aunt, it can be an uncle, it can be a grandparent, any of whom could potentially be abusive characters and act act, act badly, which is why the other side of the equation has to do with educating your kids about good touch, bad touch, and secret touch to immunize them, that they know that if anyone ever tries to touch them in an area where they would normally wear a bathing suit and wants them to keep it a secret, they have to tell you right away, and then you have to believe them when they tell you. And, and be there for them to protecting them. So that's the other piece of it. But it's just real important to realize, again, we come back to the Italian notion of i parenti, that it's the parents is a wider circle of, who, of who's raising this kid. And so in terms of modeling appropriate sexual behavior, taking pleasure in, in the wonderful bodies and temples that we have, it's, it's really uh, it, that message needs to be coming from a lot of different places, not just out of my mouth. In terms of sex, some men want a stronger, like dominant kind of sex, and some women want a softer, more submissive sex. What can you do? Would this lead to some men trying to be more dominant over women all the time? Well, I think that the answer to the challenges between the sexes is given is given to us by real estate. Location, location, location. Well, with issues between men and women, it's communication, communication, communication. Why would I want to force my partner, who is someone that I care about, to do something she doesn't want to do? And at the same time, I would hope that she would be open to doing some exploring, both in terms of the level of intimacy that we have and the sexual expression within that intimacy. And I would hope that I would be the same way, that I would be open to listening to and hearing what it is that she would like different. Many men get very threatened, even if a woman just says, could you touch me a little softer or touch me here instead of there first, it feels better. Many men get very threatened, and part of that has to do with male sexual myths and so on that we can get into in the next what, show. Yeah, what are the sexual myths that well, men learn? Some, some, some of the male sexual myths are men are supposed to be uh, ready for sexual expression uh, anytime in any place. That, that says that men don't have their own sets of conditions that make them feel comfortable and safe in terms of their sexual expression. So that's a myth. Another sexual myth is uh, it's natural and spontaneous. So therefore, uh, every man knows what to do. So that suggests that there's no reason to talk about it, which is a very destructive myth in terms of 
developing your own expertise, understanding your own body, many, many things, if that's where you're coming from. So that's two myths. A third myth has to do with the purpose of sexual expression is orgasm, and everything is orchestrated towards that. That leads out a huge territory of wonderful expression between two human beings, heterosexual and homosexual, if all you're focused on is that. And that's often the way things are with the miseducation that we get. That's often what men are programmed to do. It's sort of that that goal-oriented get her to have an orgasm or get him to have an orgasm kind of a thing. At what age do boys learn this, and how do they learn these myths? Well, I think it's more constructive to talk about what we don't do rather than what we do wrong. In other words, there, there's a lot of misconceptions that occur in the normal process of exposure to media and in the silence around these issues that goes on in households. The, just as an example, the, the basic notion of nudity, right? Again, I've been spending a lot of time in, in uh, Sicily where uh, not so much in Sicily, but in other parts of Europe, it's very common for women to go topless. It's just a normal thing that happens on the beach in the summertime. So they're the kind of notion that you'll grow up with in terms of body sense and body image is going to be very different than, than if, you, if you grow up in a culture where any form of nudity is, is considered bad or lewd or it's... It, so, so that programming is going on within the family. How does the family deal with being naked? Um, but you can't walk down the street or go to the post office nude. So how do you deal with the difference between family and community? Well, again, I think it has to do with the perception uh, that we're trying in various ways. If you, if you have a clear perception of what it is you're trying to communicate to your kids, which most people don't have, around sexuality, then the whole process becomes much easier. What I want is for my kids to be safe, number one. I want them to experience pleasure with their bodies. Uh, and I want them to be able to communicate about it. Okay? So if somebody says a word the F word at the table when they're five years old and the response from the parents is, don't you ever say that again, blah, 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 or wash your mouth out with soap or something else, which many of us experienced growing up. That's very different than, well, where did you hear that word? What do you think it means? Where you open up a conversation about it. If kids grow up where they learn that they can talk about any of this stuff, then they're going to begin to have a chance to not be sucked into that black hole of of maleducation about about sexuality and sensuality. Puberty. What do parents do when the sexual desires of boys really fire? I think it's it's really important to make a distinction between love and sexuality. And I'm treading on uh, probably some dangerous ground for a lot of listeners. The reality is that we all have sexual drives that are not necessarily connected to the desire to be intimate and, and experience love. It's a sexual need. It's a sexual desire. We don't honor that in our culture in any form that I see. 
sex always has to be connected to love. Sex always has to be connected to intimacy. And um, so that, that we get very deeply here into what people's values are. And, and the sad thing is that because we can't agree on all our values, we tend to not talk about it at all, which then becomes very destructive for the kids who are trying to find their way. So we have all these constant battles about sex ed in the schools because one person has a certain set of values, another person has another set of values, and we can't agree. So the kids end up with nothing sometimes, no discussion about values around sexuality and intimacy and love. So I think sometimes people just want to have sexual expression, and they want to have that as a short-term, limited, that's-it kind of a connection. And as long as they're doing it safely and not spreading diseases or exposing themselves to diseases, I personally think that's great. At what point does that start for it to be considered healthy? I think that's going to vary with the individual. But clearly, there are some people who are ready to be sexually active before they attain some magic legal age when all of a sudden they're supposed to be wise and make good choices. So... um, is it okay for a 15 and a 16 year old to get sexually active if they're caring about each other or if they, or even if they're not caring, if they're wanting to have some sexual exploration? Again, I think the, the issue comes down to safety first and respect for yourself and the other human being that you're interacting with. But that's not what we teach in this culture. See, we, we put such a lid on sexuality that then it starts leaking out in all these unproductive, unhealthy, destructive ways. Let's say you have a 12-year-old boy who's starting to go through puberty. What would you tell him as a parent? Well, ideally, that conversation has been going on for a long time, as I mentioned before, that we've had a series of conversations. It isn't this awkward, sit down, you're 12 now, I guess I have to talk to you about this stuff. Ideally, all along, we've been using those teachable moments. We've been demonstrating our values about how we talk about the kind of jokes we tell or don't tell uh, about, so, so that it doesn't have that awkwardness of this sort of one-time conversation and then the parent goes, phew, I'm glad that's over with, and the kid is, thanks for the history lesson, because they've already been through it. Uh, so I think that's the first response. Um, the second response is you have to base whatever it is that you're telling your kids in whatever values you are. And have you taken the time to clarify your own values around sexuality and sensuality? Again, I think, uh, you know, uh, blind obedience to rules and shoulds doesn't really get us anywhere. It's, it's about the evolution of consciousness. And, and hopefully we can rest in being in touch with our own sense of, yeah, that makes sense or no, that doesn't make sense. Dr. Victor Lacherva, co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness Group and author of the book Masculine Wisdom. His website is at myheartsongs.org. We'll have more about raising boys and this issue of sexuality, and when we come back, a former educator in San Francisco who left teaching behind to study and try to end youth violence. Also, a neuroscientist from the Chicago Medical School and the author of a book called Pink Brain, Blue Brain. All When Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. I think you'll find something useful and interesting there for sure. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and today we're talking with a panel who have all dealt closely with the riddle of raising young boys to steer them away from violence, misogyny, and other relationship-busting behavior around partners and sexuality. To briefly tell you my own personal story, I was coming of age in the 1960s, hitting puberty in the heart of what's been called the sexual revolution. I would guess my own experience learning about sex in that age was somewhat typical. No knock on my own parents, but I recall having one conversation about sex with my dad when I was maybe 12 or 13. He handed me a skinny hardback book. I remember it had a green cover and it had line drawings of how people had sex. Well, the basic procreating steps anyway. To my dad's credit, and I remember this clearly, he did say something like, sex can be a beautiful, wonderful thing. But after leaving me with the book, I can't recall having another conversation with him or anyone about sex for years. Not with my parents or any other adults, my older brother or my school friends. Maybe I was unusual, but I didn't really talk with my guy friends about it either. The only place I knew of to learn anything about it was in the pages of men's magazines, which I tried to access any way that I could. Granted, that approach probably sent some mixed messages to me, but I felt like I was getting some information there. It wasn't until I started dating myself at about 16 that I fumbled into any real experience and started working out sexuality with real-life partners. I think because there wasn't a supportive talk network early on about sex for me, uh, it made it continually challenging to talk about sex, even with partners, for decades. But I was coming up in the 1960s and early 70s. Our panel guests today all say that messaging these days that can tilt and distort a boy's developing mind come at them like a nonstop fire hose. Here, our Suzanne Kreider talks with Chicago Medical School neuroscientist Dr. Lise Elliott, who has two young boys of her own. She's the author of the book Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow into Troublesome Gaps and What We Can Do About It. Look at the movies our kids watch with the, the objectification of women that we all just get used to. Um, if we don't train kids to see that asymmetry of power in the environment, um, then they're not going to see it in their own relationships. But if we can, if we can show this, this uh, power differential and how it's, it's harmful for women, and it's actually harmful for men too, because it creates this unreal masculine ideal that they have to be in charge. They have to be all controlling. Um, that frankly probably doesn't suit a lot of a lot of boys and a lot of men. So if it doesn't suit them, why are they doing it? Our, all I can say is uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry to objectify women. It's pretty hard to cure people <laughs> or, or um, remove them from this as being acceptable and normal kind of behavior. But, you know, what's interesting to me is how some of these guys suddenly become fathers if they have daughters and their eyes are opened up when they see uh, their daughters treated in the same way that they, they may have treated women before. So how do you do it? How do you raise your boys to not objectify women? That's a really 
good question. We talk often <laughs> and uh, openly about that issue. It's not ever a comfortable conversation, and I always have to be clear to my sons that I'm not accusing them of anything, but I'm acknowledging the culture that they've stepped into and that they shouldn't be bystanders if they see girls, classmates being abused by, by other guys. Because there's so much status in, um, in aggression, the boys who aren't at the top of the pack are not comfortable challenging it. But we just need to keep plastering it right out there for the inhumanity that it is and just keep opening up more, more eyes. I'm very optimistic, actually. I think each generation of young people is more aware of the, the genuine humanity of every individual and the need to respect that. So, yeah, we could have a better world, but I have to believe that it's going to be better for our kids' generation than it was for ours and for our grandkids after that. In 2014, there was a mass shooting in Santa Barbara. It brought to the fore the conversation about misogyny and male so-called entitlement to sex. I'm curious, what does brain science say about those areas of behavior? Is it nature versus nurture or something else? Oh, I don't think uh, one could say that misogyny is hardwired. I think it's well-learned. Um, you know, any kind of um, racism, sexism, babies aren't born automatically hating <laughs> and uh, devaluing people that look different from them. It has to be learned. Oh, there's a beautiful song. It was from the musical South Pacific. I just, you have to be taught to hate. And in its time, it was a radical notion. <laughs> um, but it, it really is true, I think, that um, this is, this is well-learned behavior and, and very harmful. But if it can be learned, then um, there's hope that we can unlearn it or allow fewer boys to, to uh, learn that with each generation. I'm pleased to see uh, what they call this consent movement among young women. You know, I saw, <laughs> I saw an internet ad for um, some underwear with the word consent on it that, you know, um, we should just condition young people that there has to be some kind of verbal consent, yes, yes, I want to do this by both parties uh, before uh, they engage in sex, and especially if there's been drinking involved or, or, or something, that um, this is definitely a two-way street. And it, it's part of the whole, what I was getting at about sexism. Sexism is so built into our culture. Um, you know, both sexes are powerful, and both sexes are beautiful, and both sexes are important, and they're not so different. They really are not as different as our binary minds like to create. A lot of women are a lot more athletic than, than men. Um, a lot of men are a lot more sensitive and empathic than, than women. And we have to stop stereotyping them and let, it, let every individual just be who they're going to be. In a classroom setting, there's a lot of debate about whether boys and girls should be separated in school uh, because of their their differences in, you know, some of these 
interpersonal differences we're talking about, some of the motivational differences, some learning differences. And one of the arguments from the women's perspective of for separating boys and girls is that boys uh, tend to dominate a classroom, that the girls will take a more passive role, the boys are more active, and so girls aren't getting as much attention um, in the classroom. But I don't know, to me, the solution is not to separate the boys and girls, but to fight the sexism that makes uh, girls act more passive and boys act more aggressive. And um, with very skillful teachers, you can um, actually create a more egalitarian environment in the classroom. And if kids grew up with that, I think that if they genuinely learned to respect the other gender in schools, then we would have less uh, sexual violence later on. Dr. Lise Elliott from the Chicago Medical School. Now to some comments on the subject of young men and sex from Dr. Joseph Marshall, founder and director of the Omega Boys Club. He's working with youngsters in San Francisco and taking his prescription for living alive and free all around the world. He's been doing it since the 1980s. As we heard from Dr. Marshall in part one of our program on raising boys, He's using a straight-talk approach with youngsters in his program who've largely adopted what he calls the Ten Commandments of Violence to guide their lives. He says too many urban youngsters live by commandments like these. Thou shalt handle your business. Thou shalt do what you got to do. Thou shalt get girls. Thou shalt not be a punk. Thou shalt not snitch. Thou shalt get your respect. Thou shalt get your money on. Thou shalt carry a gun for protection. Thou shalt recruit. Thou shalt be down with your crew. Thou shalt be down with your homeboy, right or wrong. And Dr. Marshall says young men living by these commandments and picking up on other sexual myths from pop culture think that they are following a set of survival skills. But, he says, it's really just a recipe for incarceration or death. And he tells our Suzanne Kreider that it includes having them build up an expectation of sexual power and dominance over women or their partners who are also influenced by pop culture about what they're supposed to be looking for in a partner. Thou shalt get girls. Sure. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it would be the commandment. Well, there's actually two commandments. For the, the boys, it's thou shalt get girls. And for the girls, it's thou shalt get a man. Um, that's their commandment. Their thinking is, if you ever notice, let me just go there for a minute. If you ever notice, uh, girls like bad boys. Think of The Godfather or The Sopranos or any any of those films or movies. Those guys have five or 10 or 15 girlfriends, right? Because the women are attracted to that. Women are attracted to that. See, what it really is, it's just a matter of using people and manipulating people to get what you want. And I'm curious about homosexuality. If a person is in your program, but they're homosexual, what do they do with that commandment? Uh, well, then it's, it, 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 <laughs> that would not be their commandment. Depends on, depends on, you know, obviously what your orientation is, but it's a matter of using people uh, for, you know, for, for your purposes. It's, it's a manipulation tool. It's not even seeing them as individuals. It, it's what you can use them for for you. So what would you tell a parent in terms of bringing up a boy about not using girls? You know, it's interesting when you say parents, the parents, it's not so much what I tell the, the parents to tell the boys, I have to talk to the parent about their behavior, their behavior, because a lot of parents believe this. You shouldn't, nobody should use anybody. It's not a matter of, why would you use anybody at all? 
It, it, remember, we're talking about if you get into a power, domination, and control mentality, then everybody is going to be used. My guys use other guys to get what they want. They don't really care about them. I mean, they do, but they don't, okay? They use girls. Girls use guys. Everybody's using everybody. Because when you're thinking like this, it's all about you. It's not about the other person. And so my question is, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? What are you trying to get out of it? Are you trying to really be somebody's friend, care about somebody? Uh, You have to always look at your motivation for doing something. It sounds like that maybe parents are goofing up too. Like if you pass on what's inside you, do they need programs or parents? Oh, sure. Sure they do. Absolutely. I don't deal with parents. <laughs> but, uh, but because I love working with young people. But no, I mean, I, and I have actually. Yeah, you know, adults are obviously more resistant because they think they, you know, they've done it longer and they, they, think, they, they think they know it all. So, um, you know, they're less likely to listen. Young people, one good thing about working young people is they want to be guided. They really do. They want somebody to come in and tell them, you know, adolescence is a time of confusion anyway. So they're looking for guidance. They're looking for people who genuinely care for no reason at all. You have the commandments of violence. And what would you replace them with to teach young boys about women? It's interesting about boys. Boys have, you know, there are two types of women. <laughs> there's the sacred women and there's other women. Their sacred women are their mothers. Um, and, and men in general, the sacred women are their, you know, their, their daughters normally and their mothers. Uh, with boys, it's their mothers and their sisters. It's not even their girlfriends. Uh, with men, it's not even their wives oftentimes. Uh, you know, they, they have a negative view of women. They see, uh, and, and, but the negative view of women is worldwide. It's women are, and, and when I explain this, I try to explain it in a way uh, that people get it. So what I do is I, I, I have them read the, the, the negative view of women uh, as a risk factor, and I have them say, uh, have them substitute, instead of women, I have them say African, all right? So substitute, that they will say seeing the African as less than human, less than equal, uh, as a commodity to be bought and to be sold. Well, obviously when you see anybody like that, uh, you don't see them as a human being. In much of the world, that's when women are seen. Women are seen as less than equal, less than human, flawed, incomplete, um, as commodity to be bought and sold. And so when you go around the world, you see that in places. Women are just not valued. They have less value than men. There are societies that killed girls because they weren't boys. And the, the problem with the negative view of women is that it's, it's sanctioned by culture and religious thought. Honest killings in Pakistan. I mean, it's all over the world. Uh, you know, they just, that's just the way it's part of religious law in many places. It's part of cultural practices. Female genital mutilation. All of that's part of it. Again, when I challenge these things, either in an individual or in a culture or in a society, I'm challenging practices that have gone on for thousands of years. So obviously, I'm, you know, many times I'm seen as a threat. <laughs> I've been in countries by myself and said, you can't do that. And I've seen people look at me like, well, uh, you're going to have to leave because this is the way we do things. But, you know, I don't change the way I think because it's for me, I mean, what I say, because all it's all about uh, life and freedom. So y- to answer your question, it's seeing women as 
whole complete beings, period. It's, it's very, very simple. It's, you know, I have five sisters, I have a mom, you know, and, I, and it's not just how men see women, it's how women see themselves. Women see themselves in a negative light. Women see themselves as incomplete and flawed. Women see themselves as being incomplete without a man. I don't never understood that <laughs> because God does not make incomplete. But but that's but, training. That's how we're trained. Oh, go get a man. So, and, and and what you just said answered. We go back to the beginning of a conversation. It's the training. It's the programming. If you're taught a certain way, believing that's the way you should act and the way you should think, you're going to carry that out in your action. You're right. It is the training. It is definitely the training, or I call it the programming. And so until we begin to rethink a certain way, uh, you know, it's just a way to exert control over people. That's all it is. It's to keep them in their place and uh, to keep yourself in your place. It, it's about power, domination, and control. What about boys' sex drive? Like, you know, puberty hits, and they have all this sex, and they have fantasies. How can you deal with that? What does your program do to help the boys with that? How can I say this? If, if that doesn't, well, we deal with that with both men and women, and 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 that's something, you know, puberty is a tough time, and there and there were actually societies that were able to that knew that was coming and dealt with it. I think the real, the real problem is again that's something that we don't talk about. We talk about it all the time as to why you're doing what you're doing. If you're doing something to live up to, I mean, here's what happens with young men. Young men are, are told, you know, there, there's a certain male way to act when it comes to sex, okay? And, you know, I've had guys who didn't even want to have sex that had it because of their, the pressure. And it's the same with girls. There are girls who don't want to have sex that have it because of the pressure. We've seen movies about stuff like that. I talk to young people about being comfortable. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're Are you doing it because society says something? Because your friend said something? Because you're trying to live up to some kind of image? Uh, those are the conversations you have to have with young people about why they're doing what they're doing. Half the time, they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. You have to have those conversations with them. Dr. Joseph Marshall. His work is at stayaliveandfree.org. That's stayaliveandfree.org. He's executive director of San Francisco's Omega Boys Club and author of the book Street Soldier. More from Dr. Victor Lecherva, author of Masculine Wisdom, when our program about raising young boys and the development of their attitudes about sex and their partners continues when Peace Talks Radio resumes right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. We've been creating episodes about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution since 2002, and you can hear all of them on our website, peacetalksradio.com. There you can subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest news about new episodes or timely shows from our archive. Again, the website is peacetalksradio.com. Come visit. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. With so much of violent sexual crime and dating violence in the U.S. committed by males, we're asking our panel for some insights into raising young boys in a way that might steer them away from abusive sex with partners. More now with Dr. Victor Lacherva. He's the co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness Group and whose book Masculine Wisdom can be found online at his website, myheartsongs.org. That's myheartsongs.org. Here he shares with Suzanne ideas for parents and guardians about how to deal with the likelihood that youngsters in your life are being exposed to music, videos, magazines, and pornography, some of which that promote misogyny, power, violence, and non-consensual dominance of partners. The solution to that is is sort of embedded in the solutions that we've been talking about in terms of shifting male attitudes, some of getting dropping some of that destructive conditioning that occurs. Um, this comes up often in the issue of the messages that are portrayed in the media and in music videos and so on and so forth about the misogyny that seems so prevalent. And my response to that is that one of the functions of being a, a parent, and, and that means in the larger sense of being an uncle, of being, uh, of being a cousin to a young person, of wanting to positively influence young people who are in our circle of influence, let's put it that way, is monitoring. When you look at kids who survive the difficult rite of passage into adulthood, pretty much intact, there are two factors, monitoring and a sense of caring and affection that seem to make the most difference. When you look at the kids who have low monitoring and a low sense of caring and affection, they fare the worst. If you look at kids who have high monitoring and a high sense of caring and affection, they fare the best in terms of making it through this difficult rite of transition into adulthood. So part of the parent's responsibility when it comes to all of this media stuff and screen time is monitoring. And, and parents don't want to do that. When, when, and, and, and I have this, this conversation all the time when I do workshops on kids and drugs. Oh, I don't want to violate my kid's rights by going and looking in his drawer and see if he's smoking dope when he's 13. I'm sorry, that's part of your job as a parent to let him know that that's going to happen. And the same thing with, you know, looking at browser records and how much screen time you have. That is part of our job and role as parents. You get to know people that our kids are hanging out with, that you have some sense of what it is that they're reading and watching and inputting into their minds and hearts in terms of media. So you sit down and you say, hey, let's watch, let's watch one of your favorite music videos together. That's a, that's a form of monitoring. It doesn't have to be you know, going through their browser record necessarily. But, but it's a form of monitoring. It's, 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 it's a form of understanding of keeping your finger on the pulse of what it is that's, that they're exposed to. But wouldn't a kid just say, hey, you're so old. Come on, this is really hip. All the kids at school are listening to hip-hop. So what if it's misogynist? Well, the, 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 the question of 
you know, destructive peer influences is one that's not always easy to na- to navigate. But it's part of our job as parents to do the best we can. What would the parents say? I would probably, again, like the kid who at five years old uses the F word at the table, not knowing or not understanding or not having a larger grasp of what that's about. I would probably say, let's look at this together and, and then try and open up a conversation wherever there's an opening with that kid. This all takes time, energy, in our fast-paced, busy world. We don't always do it. But that's why I say we do it to the extent that we can, to the best that we can. If we really want to shift it, this is the circle of the family that we're talking about. I'm confused. I'm confused about the evolution of consciousness. If the musicians who are misogynistic and saying stuff about women being dominated or you know, women have big butts or whatever, they're being, they are becoming famous. They're the ones who are succeeding. They're the ones who are putting out the music that kids are listening to. So how come songs that are like loving and compassionate aren't being successful? Well, they are being successful. I think it, I think it's a question of, of balance and that, uh, you know, <laughs> There sort of always will be, in my opinion, the light and the dark and the counterbalance between them and the tension between them is the creative edge of evolution, is the creative edge of growth and consciousness. So there are, there's huge followings of Christian music where young people go to concerts where it's all about love and God. And, you know, it may not be a vision that I share certain parts of it, but it's a vision that's happening that's positive. There are also many rap stars that have come out with more positive rap lyrics and so on and so forth. So there's, there's that balance that's happening. The question is, how do you open up the conversation and connect with the young people so that you can hopefully get their perspective and then share some of your own perspective? How would you do that? How would you open a conversation with some kid who really didn't have good parenting? Well, part of it is I have to first have a connection with them. Before I'm going to get into an area where there's potential conflict and difference of opinion and difference of perspective or any possibility that I'm going to come off as some old guy preaching at them, I need to, I need to establish some other type of connection. I love to do uh, martial arts stuff with kids when I was actively working in the schools a lot because that's something that they're interested in. Sports is a way to connect with young people. Uh, there was a there was a movement again one of those programs that that made such good sense but then didn't get replicated enough of teaching s- sports uh, coaches. Uh, it was called the MVP, Most Valuable Player, but it was mentors for violence prevention by a guy named I believe the, I believe it was Jackson Katz, who who started that whole program. And the idea was let's train coaches so that when the kids make a sexual remark on the field or in the locker room. The coach has some training, some consciousness, some thought about how to intervene with that. And it has a series, it's called the, the MVP Playbook, and, uh, and it's got vignettes that you can then discuss with the kids. Like you're at a party and you notice that two of your friends are trying to get a girl drunk so that they can get sexual with her. What do you do? Or one of your teammates slaps his girlfriend at a party. What do you do? How do you not just be a bystander, but take positive action for something that's not okay. Like, you know, traditionally, if it was your sister or your mother or somebody else, would you want anybody being treated that way? Uh, 
So that's a creative way of trying to reach out to have other people besides the parents have a positive influence on changing this culture. So the issue of dealing with videos where there's a lot of misogynist messages or the whole issue of pornography and young people is very troubling, very disturbing, and very difficult terrain to navigate. So let me just give a couple of quick suggestions. The first is it's always important to the extent that you can just like with drug experiences, to share from your own personal experiences to the extent that you can. So you might say, I'm, I might say, for example, I remember being on the playground when there was no internet and no easy access to this kind of material and people bringing a magazine with, with pictures of naked girls and how we were all eager to look at those pictures and get stimulated by those pictures. Anyway, you get the idea so that you share a personal experience that connects them, that, that helps you connect to them. Then from there, you can go and talk about the messages that the culture constantly tries to trick you with. Like there's all this advertising. Why is there advertising? Is it really because this product is so great or is it because they want to constantly generate need in you and the desire in you for something and you've experienced it yourself that once you get it, it's not so great and you probably didn't need it. Just how the media in general tries to manipulate you and trick you because teenagers hate feeling that they're being manipulated or tricked. So this is another way that all of this stuff is another way to try and trick you to think a certain way. And what I want you to do, what I'm inviting you to do, is think for yourself. So the culture, there's all these messages about objectifying women, da-da-da-da, and then you can go down that path of, do you think that really helps you in relationship when you've got well, a real woman? it feels good, and you said pleasure was good. I'm going to get to that. The third piece is has to do with, with anything when it comes to any kind of experimentation or explorations that our young people are up to that we have concerns about is to have that sort of objective conversation of, well, what's good about it? What's bad about it? What's good about watching porn? What's potentially destructive about watching porn? Uh, and then that opens up, and, 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 and it, it allows the young person to have a sense a little bit more that you're on their side. Or, again, it may not be me as the parent. It may be one of these people that, that, that I've designated as folks that, that will share similar values to me when my kids don't want to be listening to me. So what's good about it? What's bad about it? Yeah, gee, it's kind of pleasurable. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, I learn new things. Uh, and what's destructive about it? Well... What might be destructive is that I'm always looking for something else and not satisfied with what I've got. Or uh, it can be kind of addictive because I find that it's, I, I, wanna, I want more of it. And then you can talk about brain physiology. I mean, just like drug, pornography is clearly an, another one of those addictions in our culture that has become widespread. I often get this question when I was doing a lot of, of talks. I, I would get a question of a woman who would come up to me very shyly, usually at the end of the talk, and say, I don't know what to do about my husband and his pornography. I'm, I'm a big proponent that we are as sick as we are secret. So anything that you're doing a lot in secret, drinking, drugging, watching porn, that's an indication. That's feedback. 
that something is off in your relationship to this phenomena. Hmm. Uh, I also think it's, it's possible, again, in a more enlightened culture, that we would be able to educate our kids with visual images uh, that were beautiful visu- visual images, as opposed to ones that, that, are, uh, that don't show respect for, for the other people. I don't know what your own experience with porn is, but some pornography that involves bondage, at the end, they will show the two people being kind and loving with each other and how they both enjoyed that experience, which I actually consider, if you talk about harm reduction, kind of a positive step because they're showing you that this was between consenting adults and this is not something that represented power over another human being. Except that a lot of times men learn to go out and be powerful over other men or other women. I'm completely agreeing with you, but I'm, I'm just talking about ways in which even within the circle that creates porn, there are people, just as we talked about before about rap artists, that there are rap artists trying to come with more productive, positive views of the world. Even within the realm of pornography, there are people who are trying to produce artistic showing of people enjoying the experience together or people who are enjoying fringe activities but who are treating each other with respect and care, even within that, that circle. So if, if you see a, a clip of a particular thing, you might say, oh, that's absolutely disgusting and why would anybody want to do that? That's all your judgment stuff. Again, we come back to the notion of pretty much anything is okay as long as it's not hurtful to yourself or another human being and it's consensual. In terms, of, in terms of sexuality. And that's not a message that most people in this culture, with all of our own baggage, religious and otherwise, are willing to embrace. So then it becomes much more difficult to transmit that to, to kids. So if you have in your mind, as a parent, pornography's bad, it's terrible, it's destructive, there's nothing else, then you can try and give that message to your kids. But then it becomes a bit of the forbidden fruit. Whereas this other approach, what's good about it, what's bad about it, ideally you're starting to teach them to think for themselves so that they can stay in good relationship. Safety first and try and stay in good relationship with drugs, with sexuality, with all of the things that are out there that are potentially dangerous and destructive. Dr. Victor Lecherva, in your book, Masculine Wisdom, you talk about male Heterosexual intimacy, what is that? Intimacy can be defined as a willingness to share my inner life and understand about your inner life. What are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, wants, desires, and what are mine? And that's the ground of intimacy. And without expanding emotional fluency, it's, it's difficult for men to be intimate on that level. In other words, if I am not even in touch with my own feelings, how am I going to share them with you? And so one of the driving forces for men in terms of the relationship between intimacy and sexuality is that we will get to intimacy through the physical means because we, that other, those other tools for intimacy are not as well developed. So when we talk about male intimacy, what we're really talking about is how to expand the playing field of what's available to me to share with a partner. 
Dr. Jerry, you have two daughters. If you had had two sons, would you have taught them differently? Or how would you have taught them differently? Well, I think some of the things would have remained the same, trying to find other support people to be there when I'm having communication difficulties with them during their adolescence. I think that piece would have been the same. I think the piece around trying to have ongoing conversations to transmit my values around love, around sexuality, around how to be in the world would have also been the same. What would have been different was I would have had to pay much more attention to developing uh, and expanding emotional fluency in, in, in my boys than with my girls. I mean, I, I see it now because some of my best friends have just sons and some of my best friends have just daughters and some of them have the mix, of course, but it's, it's really a contrast when I get together with my girls and the level of emotional content that gets exchanged versus the level of emotional content that gets exchanged when I witness my friends with their sons. So I would have paid much more attention into making sure my boys were, were coming up with some sense of emotional fluency, that crying is a great way to relieve stress and, 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 and you don't have to carry it, that developing other male friendships is a very important part of being a healthy male as opposed to isolation and thinking that you have to do it all yourself of managing your anger, which is much more, it's an issue for both men and women, but it's much more of an issue for men because anger is often the only allowable emotion to men in this culture. So I would have paid much more attention to that. Victor Lacherva, author of Masculine Wisdom. You can find out more about his work at myheartsongs.org. To hear the entire conversations with each of our guests, as well as part one of our series on raising boys, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, and look for our August and September 2014 shows, all at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. That's also where you can sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, order CDs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Additional support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls for Suzanne Kreider. Thanks again for listening to and supporting Peace Talks Radio.